The rest of you, please open your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy. Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2. I wonder how many parents here have had an opportunity to pull aside a son or a daughter at a critical moment and give them advice, wise words on how to succeed in something. Particularly, I think of a father pulling aside a son before he, say, heads off to college, before marriage, encouraging him, instructing him how he can persevere how he can run his course, how he can fulfill the responsibilities that will be required of him. The Proverbs are written that way. So many of the Proverbs begin, My son, lend your ear to my teaching. And here in today's passage, Paul, as a spiritual father to Timothy, does the same thing. Paul has sent for Timothy. He longs to see him, but he is not sure he will live until Timothy comes. And I think that in case... Timothy is unable to come, or in case Paul goes to see the Lord before Timothy arrives, Paul pens our passage today, and you can hear the notes of a loving father to a loved spiritual son, and the passage we're looking at just continues the theme of of urging Timothy to persevere, urging Timothy not to be ashamed, not to be afraid to suffer, not to be timid but to trust in God's power. Last week, we looked at the two negative examples of men who became embarrassed and ashamed of the Apostle Paul, turned their back on him, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and we saw the positive example of Onesimus. And now on the heels of that passage, let's read the first seven verses of chapter two. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, if the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And in this passage, the, the aged apostle, speaking to Timothy, gives him four keys, four principles, four imperatives that Timothy must engage in if he is going to continue, if he is going to persevere, if he is going to avoid the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Four imperatives, four commands in this passage, making our four points in the outline of what is necessary to persevere in gospel ministry. Persevering in gospel ministry. And and in case you think, well, that applies only then to professional ministers, church leaders, I would remind you, according to Ephesians 4, that the work of the ministry is the bodies. Christ gave the apostles and the prophets the teachers, the evangelists, and the pastors, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the work of the ministry is mine in so much as I am a saint, in so much as I am a Christian, but the work of the ministry is yours as well, just as much. So all of us have something to pay attention to. All of us, I hope, want to avoid 
somewhere in the future, years from now, turning from the gospel, turning from biblical truth. We, we want to be faithful like Onesimus. We want to be faithful like Paul. We want to say, when we go to be with the Lord, that we have finished the race, that we have fought the good fight. And so I think these four commands, these four keys, are important for us to, to learn. So let's just take them one at a time. Number one, live in gospel truth. Live in gospel truth. This is the very beginning of our passage. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I would remind you that when the Apostle Paul wrote, he did not include chapter numbers and verse numbers. They are added in the Middle Ages. They are helpful. But oftentimes, the chapter division can falsely give the impression that we've moved on to a new subject. We have not. You'll notice that verse 1 begins with that then, connecting it to what came before. And you, you will see thematically that really, beginning at 1.3 or 1.6, all the way through 2.13, one topic is being addressed. The necessity for Timothy to, to get up, shake off the dust, stir up his gifts, trust in God's power, not be afraid, not be ashamed, and persevere in ministry. And everything that Paul is saying is stirring Timothy up to do this. He's either giving him warnings or encouragement and instruction. In fact, next week, we'll sort of hit the pinnacle of, of, this, of this exhortation where Paul brings in the final trustworthy saying in verses 11 through 13, all focusing on the need of Timothy, the need of Christians to persevere in fact, in the next two weeks, we'll be looking quite closely at the, the biblical teaching of the perseverance of the saints. But here, starting in verse 1, the command is to live in gospel truth. The command is, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the reason why I say gospel truth, I don't want you to think of gospel truth as, as like sp four spiritual laws or something. Gospel truth, this, this is gospel truth. Everything in the Bible either points to the cross or comes out of the cross. I had a chat with someone this week asking about the function of, of Leviticus and some of the offerings and all the things that are there. Well, they point and prepare for the sacrifice of Jesus. So even they are not removed from the gospel. I was having another conversation with Pastor Daniel this week, and we were talking about the importance of understanding the gospel, how it flows out so that, that the commands in the New Testament aren't seen as law by themselves, but coming out of the gospel. Training, say, a child to see how the gospel leads them to obey the command to honor and obey their parents. And so what Paul is talking about, we'll see more clearly in verse 2 when he says, the grace in Christ Jesus is, is Christian truth and, and the gospel revealed therein. And what's interesting is this first command is a passive command. It's always interesting to consider, how do you, how do you obey a passive command? Literally, it's be strengthened. It's, it's a cognate of those words we've looked at already for power, same word family. Be empowered, be strengthened, be made able by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. He, he doesn't tell Timothy to empower yourself. He doesn't tell Timothy, Timothy, it's up to you to, to become powerful. It's up to you to have positive thoughts and believe in yourself. Then you will be self-empowered so that you can persevere. That's not what he says. He tells Timothy to let himself be strengthened. Be strengthened by grace. And, and of course, that begs the question, why, why would he need this? Well, the answer, I think, is obvious, because in ourselves, 
we don't have the strength to persevere. In myself, I don't have the strength to make it through today, to make it through the next five minutes, and neither do you. And we can walk in our own strength for a little while, and either the weight of our responsibility will crush us down into despairing, or we will mitigate and minimize what God requires of us, and then we'll think we did it on our own, and we'll become self-righteous. But the only true way to persevere, the only true way to, to make it to the finish line is by relying on and being strengthened by God's grace. That's, that is what is required. Paul is a big fan of grace. We just sang about it this morning. Paul, Paul's foundation is grace. If you want to make it to the end, there is going to be work. We'll see in some of these later commands there are things to be done, but you've got to start with grace. So, so how does that work? I mean, because that sounds awfully spiritual and sanctified. You need to be strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus. But what, what, what does that look like? How do you let yourself be strengthened by grace? Well, part of the thing is to think about Paul's understanding of grace. Paul's understanding of grace is far more active and powerful, I think, than many of ours. Oftentimes we think of grace simply as that which we receive, unmerited, the grace of the gospel, Indeed. But grace is active, and grace is transforming. Turn a page over to Titus, the, the last book we looked at. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul has something else to say about grace, which I think will help us understand this command here to be strengthened by grace. How, how do you do this? How do you get beyond the nice Christian platitudes and practically obey this command? In Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And if you remember, when we looked at this passage a few months ago, we talked about the school of grace. This is a training grace. This is an active grace. This is a grace of God that wants to shape us and change us and become our teacher. And we talked about enrolling in the school of grace, the gospel school of grace, letting God's grace train us, which is why God sent it out. He sent it to announce salvation. You see in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. What do I think Paul means when he tells Timothy back in 2 Timothy 2 to be strengthened by grace, to let grace strengthen him? I think it's the same thing as saying, continue on being trained by grace in the school of grace. And so that, that helps, I think, give some practical application here. Well, what's the grace of God training us to do? It's training us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God is training us to, to trust in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen as our Savior. The grace of God is, is training us to look eagerly for his second coming. We, we sang about that again this morning. That's what the grace of God is training us to do. And if, if we're to be strengthened by that grace, we're to let that grace have its way with us. Um, if you want to be strengthened, if your faith is weak, if your walk is weak, let grace train you. Submit yourself to the school of grace, the grace of God, grace of God that calls us to pray, calls us to 
word, calls us to fellowship and calls us to deny ungodliness. And, and I plead with you, we've got to start here because whatever you're looking to to strengthen you, when you're tired, when you're weary, where do you go for refreshment and strength? Do you, as I do sometimes, find my strength and my refreshment in watching TV? Those, those can be good things. Or, or do you find, I need to get in the Word. I need to get in prayer. You know, as, as I grow as a Christian, more and more I want that to be my response. I want to rely more on God's grace. I need more grace. And so I'm going to go to the throne of grace for help in time of need. So how do you submit to grace? You you do those things that the Spirit is leading you to do. You draw close to God in in prayer and in worship and in fellowship with other believers, and you fight sin, and you walk faithfully. That's how you let grace strengthen you. That's how you let grace train you. So it's a passive command. Let yourself be strengthened by grace. And of course, there are other options to find our strength in. There are those who are strengthened in their financial reports. There are those who are strengthened in good health. That's where they find their power and their ability. There are those who are strengthened through accomplishment, through the praise of man, strengthened through entertainment, through food. Oh, there is many options and many things in the world that promise, I will give you strength. I will make you able. I will make you sufficient. And Paul tells Timothy, no, if you want to be faithful, if you want to, if you want to finish the course like Onesimus, if you want to avoid the danger of Hymenaeus and Philetus, you need to be strengthening, letting yourself be strengthened regularly. This is an ongoing thing, by the way. It's a present active verb. Keep being strengthened by grace could be another way to translate this. And that's, that's, that's the starting point. And if you don't know the Lord, and if you, if you have never come to trust in Jesus as your Savior, you don't know the grace of God. And the grace of God isn't active in your life. But more about that in our second point. So first, you need to live in gospel truth and keep living in gospel truth. Secondly, we've got to pass on gospel truth. Pass on gospel truth. Verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And here's another of our terms that have been showing up. Again, illustrating this is all one passage. That word entrust occurred previously in verses 12 and 14 of chapter 1, where Paul first speaks, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard into that day what has been entrusted to me, or probably a better reading what I have entrusted to him. And then, down in verse 14, Paul speaks of what's been entrusted to Timothy by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so here, Paul has passed the baton to Timothy. He is in, Timothy has been entrusted with something. And here in 2, verse 2, Timothy is told to then take what he's been entrusted and entrust it to others. This is the way the Christian faith and the Christian teaching maintains. It has been said that Christianity and the church is only ever one generation away from apostasy, only one generation away from collapse. Notice here, Paul did public teaching. This isn't secret insight knowledge, as the Gnostics would would have some believe. One of the earliest Christian heresies was the belief that there was secret knowledge 
that only a certain few had. And if you had that secret knowledge, if you had that, that upper level, then you could be a really spiritual person. No, Paul, what Paul wants Timothy to pass on is what he publicly taught in the presence of many witnesses. It's, it's the content of Paul's letters. The reason why I say gospel truth means more than simply the gospel is because Paul's talking about all the things he taught. And if you read Paul's letters... He's teaching in all manner of subjects coming out of the gospel. And he's referencing all manner of Old Testament passages in reference to the gospel. And so it's, it's this pattern of sound words that Paul has in mind, that Timothy is to entrust to other men who will entrust to other men. So we've got four generations in view here. You've got Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, to Timothy, to faithful men who will entrust it to other faithful men. And again... This is why the instructions here and the encouragements here are not limited simply for a few professionals or the elders, because even if you or I are not a Paul, and we are not, and we're not a Timothy, hopefully we can start to fill in amongst those faithful men who will teach others faithfully. Um, this is the basis of our Tough Men program. This is why so much of what we do at our church involves teaching, why we spend so much of our time studying God's Word, because this responsibility is given to us. The responsibility to guard truth, to pass on truth, is not given just to a few. It's not given to the book publishers. It's given to the body. The body needs to know the truth, public truth, truth that can be confirmed by others. It's one of the reasons why we teach from the Bible, because everyone who has a Bible in your hands, hopefully, and if I'm saying something that's not there, you can challenge that and go, whoa, whoa, I don't think so. And likewise, if Timothy gets something wrong that Paul taught, those many witnesses, some of whom are probably in Ephesus, where he is, can go, whoa, 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 I don't think you got that right. This is a body responsibility to pass on truth. For 2,000 years, the church has been passing on truth. And what's sad is you can see institutions, you can see denominations, you can see schools where somewhere along the line that passing the baton fumbled. Princeton began its time as a seminary. So did Harvard. I suggest to you today that, that Martin Luther and John Wesley would have a hard time recognizing the churches that bear their names by their teaching. The baton that started getting passed somewhere along the line, changed course. And what those men taught, passed to those men from the Bible, has somehow morphed. And, and we, the same thing can happen to us. We're only a generation away from that happening. We all know of churches that used to have a sound reputation, who used to be faithful to the word, and now just sort of drifting. Somewhere along the way, that baton passing stuttered, stumbled, stopped. And so, point A, it's important for each and every one of us to be someone's student. You're not going to be able to participate in this passing of baton if you don't first receive the baton. He doesn't tell Timothy to teach what comes into his mind. He doesn't tell Timothy to teach and pass on what's happening in the movies or popular entertainment. He doesn't even tell Timothy to pass on the result of his own study of the word. He, what he tells Timothy to pass on is time-tested truth, witnessed by many, agreed upon by many. That is what he is to pass on. This is part of the reason why many churches and institutions have doctrinal statements. So there can be some testimony. This is what we believed, and then it's available for us to compare is what we believed, what we believe now. 
I need to be someone's student. You need to be willing to take a seat of a learner. Um, and it's going to involve other people. And sometimes you talk to people and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll cite First John. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need anyone to teach you. Um, I don't need anyone to teach me. I have a Bible and I have a spirit. Well, in some sense, that's true. But one has to wonder why Jesus gave the church teachers if we don't need teachers. One has to wonder why um, these commands are given. So I'd encourage everyone here to look at your life. Have you been, are you willing to be, are you being a student of somebody? Are you learning? Are you a learner? Are you receiving sound words? And this isn't just something for men. Again, Titus chapter 2 again. Paul emphatically wants the women teaching. Women. All of us are to be involved in this baton passing. All of us have a role to play. This isn't just the, the role of few. The only qualification is being faithful. If you can be faithful, you can be part of this baton passing. This grand work of guarding and perpetuating truth. But Titus chapter 2, verse 3, older women... Likewise, there be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Anyone who's going to be a parent is going to be called to train and in Colossians 3, the evidence of being filled with God's word is speaking to one another in hymns and psalms and teaching one another. Be a student, be someone's student, but also be someone's teacher. That's the second point. There's some here who maybe you're too nervous, too afraid to teach. And teaching doesn't necessarily need to be in a formal classroom, in a pulpit. But you need to be engaged somehow if you, if you want to be faithful, this is the mark of faithful people. This is what faithful Christians are called to do, to be involved in this baton passing where they're receiving the truth and they're passing it on. And you can do that in your child's bedroom at night. You can do that in a conversation with a coworker at lunch. You can do that in an ABF class. There's so many ways to do that. But if you think you're faithful and you're not part of this, then something's wrong. Something's wrong that the faithful Christians, Paul says, um, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And it's our job to guard the pattern of sound words that Paul has called Timothy to guard back in chapter 1, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. We're to guard this, and we're to pass this on. So we're receiving it, and we're passing it on. And it's just perpetually doing that. It's been going on for 2,000 years, and if the Lord tarries, I hope we will not be the generation, we will not be the church that stutters, that stumbles, that gets distracted or too busy. So we've got to live in gospel truth, but we've got to pass on gospel truth as well. Third, third command, endure for gospel truth. The third command there is found in verse 3. Share in suffering. 
as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. And here, Paul brings in three examples, three illustrations, three very familiar pictures that hopefully will relate to all of us to encourage Timothy to be willing to suffer. And the relationship between endurance and suffering is this. If you don't want to suffer, you're going to avoid it and you won't endure, right? You see how that, that link works? If, if you're embarrassed of Paul's chains, if you're afraid of being likewise treated, then you're going to you know, distance yourself from the apostle Paul. And when certain teachings of Christianity become unpopular, when the culture says they don't like something, well, you might just be tempted to, you know, yeah, maybe that stuff is confusing. We don't know what Paul meant or what he said. And you'll, you'll just bend. And so suffering, being willing to suffer which has been a huge theme, if you've been here in the last few weeks of, of 2 Timothy, is tied directly to Paul's concern that Timothy finish the course, make it to the end. Make no mistake, it'll be your desire for self-preservation, your desire to escape reproach and suffering that will most likely drive you not to hold firmly to the word or to Christ or to his servants. And so let's look at the three examples that Paul gives. Three that'll help Timothy, help us get our heads wrapped around this so that we're willing to endure suffering, that we're willing to endure for gospel truth. And first, we have the example of the soldier. The example of the soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him and share in suffering with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now here, this metaphor for soldier is not primarily having in view warfare. Paul uses it elsewhere with warfare primarily in view. Here what we're looking at is primarily the discipline and the obedience required of soldiers. I'm not in the military, but I did go for three years to military school, and one of the things they were very clear on is they expected us to obey. They expected us to get up when we were told to get up. They expected us to stand in line when we were to stand in line, even if it was in the hot sun, even if people were passing out during parades. We were expected to endure hardship and obey. And I can only imagine how much more that is true in the real military. I'm sure you can talk to Wendell. Where's Wendell at? Wendell, the military does expect its people to obey, right? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. In fact, that's the whole point of boot camp is to train people who aren't used to getting up early, who aren't used to being told what to do, to, to jump to, to snap, and to do what they're told without question, without grumbling, without complaining. That, that's what Paul has in view here. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the first point, soldiers need to be willing to suffer. I, I certainly hope no one joins the enlisted army or marines because they're looking for a vacation, because they're looking for rest, because they're looking for an easy time. I think there's a certain amount of expecting hard treatment. There's a certain amount of expecting things to be uncomfortable when one joins the military service. And next Paul says that as a soldier, what's required is to be undistracted. And that's really what Paul's getting at here when he talks about 
No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. And what's translated as civilian pursuits literally just means the things of this life. And again, you can picture when the soldiers are lined up in formation and, and the sergeant's walking down the line and there's you know, Private Thomas checking his Facebook to see if anyone liked his most recent update. There'd be little to no tolerance for that, would there? Because you're in the army now, and so the time for checking your Facebook statuses, you can do that on leave, but you know, that's not appropriate now. You're going to be undistracted. There, there are many good things that we can be doing that can, can distract us from the best thing. The good is the eternal enemy of the best. I want you to listen to a, a few passages here um, that warn us about this danger of being distracted. First, let's just think of the the parable of the sower and the thorny ground. And Jesus says, As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves to be unfruitful. You want to be unfruitful? Just get caught up in this world. Just get distracted in all sorts of non-sinful, but also having nothing to do with your mission things. Just, Just... Just get distracted. You can get filled up. The world has so many distractions to offer. Things that aren't necessarily bad. You go back to the illustration of uh, winning the the lottery. You you go into Hy-Vee and you're the one millionth customer and they're going to put you in the money room for a minute, if you remember this. So I want you to imagine you're you're there. You've got one minute. There's a room full of money and in the room are three tables. One piled high with ones, one piled high with fives, and one piled high with twenties. They give you shopping bags and all your friends from the church are there gathered around to cheer you on and they fire the gun and the lights go crazy and you run in and you run over to the ones table and you start cramming ones into your bag and all your friends cry out, what are you doing, right? And you turn around and you go, "What's, what's wrong with the ones? Well, the answer is, of course, nothing, stupid. <laughs> if the way you defend the time you spend and how you spend it is simply what's wrong with it, you're asking the wrong question. That's the point. There are all sorts of things that there's nothing technically wrong with it. But they can distract you from what is right. They can distract you from what is required. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have, are surrounded so, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Two things to set aside. Sin, which I think we all get. Sin will slow you down. But weight and encumbrance. I, I, I haven't done a whole lot of foot races, but I've seen them on TV, and I don't see many people wearing snowshoes. I don't believe snowshoes are illegal in foot races. They just don't help. I know divers can wear weights around their ankles when they dive, but I've never seen a, 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 someone running the Boston Marathon with those on. There's all sorts of things that can, can distract us. And Paul's focus here in his first analogy on being a soldier is not moving away from it, understanding there's going to be some hardship and being focused and undistracted. And, and, and the way that we're going to do that is if we are intent on pleasing the Lord, intent on pleasing the Lord. What's going to motivate us to do that? We want to please him. Which, of course, then rubs up against, I want to please me. And those will be the decisions in my life. The things that promise to please me or the things that I know please him. 
Paul warns of this same distraction in 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7 as he's encouraging some in Corinth to remain unmarried. I want you to be free from anxieties, 1 Corinthians 7, 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Is there anything wrong with that? No. In and of itself. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about the things the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you. So Paul's not giving a command here. He's not saying, I forbid marriage. Sadly, a lot of the early church fathers missed that one up. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul's after, undivided devotion. Don't get entangled in civilian affairs. I mean, you can just stop here and say, okay, are there... I'd encourage you, are there things in your life, are there things in my life that in and of themselves are not bad, but they're distracting, we're wasting time on. And a good way to measure that is realizing that each and every one of us will give an account for every word said, every moment spent when we stand before the Lord. And as you begin to do things and spend your time, a good question to ask is, how will I feel accounting for what I'm doing and how much time I'm spending on what I'm doing? And that's between you and the Lord. And I'm not going to judge you, and hopefully you won't judge me. But this is a word for all of us. Let's move on now to our second example. Second example, the example of the athlete. Verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That seems pretty obvious. But I think it's profound. Whereas in the first illustration, and all of these, again, are, are, are devised so that Timothy will will persevere. He won't, he won't turn from the course. The first one is understand you've been enlisted in the Lord's army. Things are going to be rough. And if you're going to be a faithful soldier, you've got to be undistracted. Here, you've you got to play by the rules. But the first thing I want to observe is this. An athlete wants to win. This whole proverb, this whole example only makes sense if you get the athlete wants to win. Paul starts off that way saying, hey, look, an athlete's only crowned and then he gives the conditions. Now that's not going to motivate you unless you want to be crowned. So what are we talking about here? I think we're talking about heavenly reward. Turn, turn a page to, to 2 Timothy 4. Paul picks up this analogy personally. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. So what crown are we talking about? Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. That's the crown we're talking about. We're talking about heavenly reward. We're talking about arriving into heaven and, and hoping to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We're talking about Jesus Christ, not sitting, but standing at the right hand of the Father when, when Philip is stoned and brought home. You've got to want to win. You've got to want to be there. And sadly, if the world's concerns consume you too much, you won't even care. Yeah, I'll go to heaven someday. But i got all this stuff in front of me now. And so 
Paul is, is encouraging Timothy, don't, don't forget there's a judgment. Don't forget there, there is gonna be rewards. Don't forget that this world is a vapor. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the crown. The Lord will give. And then secondly, not only does he want to win, he cannot attempt to cheat. What does that mean for us? What it means is that we gotta play by God's rules. We don't have the freedom to do ministry our own way, to do our Christian life our own way, to be innovators if we're innovating the text. There are some, sadly, who think they can compete, who think they will win a prize, but are doing it against the rules. I just want to read an illustration I'm sure you're all familiar with, though, to point this out. Lance Armstrong was born on September 18, 1971, at Methodist Hospital in Plano, Texas. At age 16, Armstrong began competing as a triathlete and was a national sprint course triathlon champion in 1989-1990. In 1992, Armstrong began his career as a professional cyclist. He had notable success between 1993 and 96, including the 1993 World Championship Classica de San Sebastian in 1995 an overall victory in the penultimate Tour de Pont, and a handful of stage victories in Europe, including the stage of Limoges, the Tour de France. On October 2nd, 1996, then aged 25, Armstrong was diagnosed as having stage three testicular cancer. The cancer spread to his brain, lungs, and abdomen. On October 3rd, Armstrong had an orchiectomy, surgery to remove the cancer. And after the surgery, Dr. Reeves said he had less than a 50% chance of survival. And let's just pause there. This is a man who's shown great work, great zeal, great energy, pursuing a goal, excellence as an athlete. And he overcomes adversity, and he gets dealt a hand that might knock some people out, and he comes back with a 50% Armstrong's last chemotherapy treatment was received on December 13, 1996. In February 1997, he was declared cancer-free, but shortly afterward came the news that his contract with the Confidence team had been canceled. And we all know about the comeback story, right? I mean, the amazing, I mean, you could just make this into a movie. Armstrong's cycling comeback began in 1998 when he finished fourth in the Volta a España. In 1999, he won the Tour de France, including four stages. He beat the second rider by seven minutes and 37 seconds. I mean, what a, an amazing story of perseverance, of overcoming difficulty, of sticking in there and getting back up and you get knocked down. And if only the story ended there, right? But we gotta go on. In June 2012, the United States Anti-Doping Agency accused Armstrong of doping, trafficking of drugs based on blood samples from, 19, from 2009 to 2010, and testimonies from witnesses, including former teammates. Further, he was accused of putting pressure on teammates to take performance-enhancing drugs as well. The USADA report concluded that Armstrong, quote, engaged in the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program the sport has ever seen End quote. Armstrong was initially suspended and eventually banned from participating in sports sanctioned by WADA. 
After the USADA's report, all of Armstrong's sponsors dropped him. He reportedly lost $75 million in a day. After years of public denials, Armstrong reversed course and admitted doping in an interview on Oprah Winfrey in January 2013. You gotta play by the rules. All that glory, all that faithfulness, all that hard work, all that integrity and discipline, and all those victories vanish because he didn't play by the rules, right? If we want to make it to the end, we've got to have the endurance. Clearly, Armstrong had endurance. He had grit. He had drive. He had discipline. He didn't play by the rules. And I can't help but think of our Lord's words, sorry, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians three twelve. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, and hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, as though he himself, although he himself be saved, but only as through fire. So first, Paul tells Timothy, you gotta, you gotta recognize you've been enlisted in the service of the Lord. You gotta be undistracted. Secondly, you gotta play by the rules if you wanna win. And maybe what can happen for us is we can start making compromises. Well, I do this, this, and this, so it's okay that I do this. I'm faithful here, here, and here, so the Lord's gonna look the other way in my unfaithfulness over here. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And be sure your sins will find you out. The Lord is not mocked. Third example, the example of the farmer. And here we've got good Midwest examples, right? The farmer. And what's interesting about this example is unlike the first two, there's no glory here. There's no applause. There are no parades for successful farmers. There should be, but there aren't. And so here's the work and the toiling farmer, remember, the work that's done in ignominy. The work that's done that no one sees. There's lots of hard work in the Christian life that you're not going to get you know, given an award for. In fact, I think some of the hardest things the Lord calls us to do, you're not going to get recognized for. There are no immediate results. That's the next thing. There are no immediate results. So not only is farm work, and especially back in Paul's day where there weren't tractors and, and the Kinzenbaws weren't around helping out. <laughs> it was hard toil, Right? And, and when you get done your first week prepping the field, do you have a harvest? No. When you get done the second, third, fourth, fifth week, do you have a harvest? No. You do all types of labor, all types of work, all types of toil, and you get nothing for it. Big goose egg, right? And yet an experienced farmer isn't discouraged by that because he knows that when the crop comes, point two, he gets the first share of the harvest. And so Timothy is, is laboring like a farmer, and he's, he's, he's working hard, and, and he may not be seeing a lot of results. He may not be seeing a lot of fruit. It, it will come, Paul tells Timothy. It will come. A hardworking farmer isn't discouraged by that because he knows he gets to get a share when the crop comes in. And there may be people in your life that you've been ministering to, speaking truth to, who haven't responded, who haven't responded, who haven't responded. Keep speaking truth to them. The soil may not yet sprout but in god's timing and will it will i think of galatians 6 9 let us not grow weary of doing good 
For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The Lord's not mocked, but the Lord also will not mock you. He, he will not let your hard work, your labor go unnoticed. He will redeem it. He will use it. It will bear fruit, and you will be satisfied by it. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But if you feel the Lord's got you somewhere doing something difficult, doing something toilless with no recognition, loving a hard-to-love person, doing ignoble work, just sort of trying to be faithful, the Lord's watching, there will be a harvest. You will get a reward. And don't be discouraged if you don't see it today. Those are Paul's examples for Timothy. You've got to be like that soldier, disciplined, focused, ready to suffer. You've got to be like the athlete who plays by the rules. And you've got to be like the farmer who toils, even though he gets no immediate reward, knowing a reward is coming. Knowing a reward is coming. And fourth, a fourth command, we've got to live gospel truth. We've got to pass on gospel truth. We've got to endure for gospel truth. Finally, we've got to think upon gospel truth. Verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And again, because I'm understanding gospel truth is really Paul's teaching, the Bible's teaching, Paul calling upon Timothy to think over what he says fits in with this pattern. You know, and the final thing Paul wants of Timothy is not just to hear him once, but to walk away and be chewing on, be thinking about it. And if we do that, Paul promises, what may initially be difficult to understand, the Lord will give us understanding. He won't leave us in the dark forever. You got a passage of the Bible you find challenging, difficult, keep chewing on it. God will give the increase. God will give growth. This is, again, present active, continuous practice. I want you to listen to the, the, the exhortation given to the Hebrews and how the writer of the Hebrews describes Christians become mature, what describes the mature and immature. Breaking off a discussion about Melchizedek, the writer says this in chapter 5, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by now you ought to be teachers, you ought to be people passing on what you've heard, you need someone else to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What marks someone who's growing mature? They have skill in the word. What marks immaturity? No skill in the world. Dull of hearing. Do you get distracted when you're reading your Bible and listening to a sermon after two minutes? Gird up the loins of your mind and grow in discipline. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constantly holding up what they see and what they think to this so they can separate the good from the bad. Constantly separating. Constantly thinking. Or as Deuteronomy 6 says, you can nail it on your doorpost, on your forehead, and on your wrists. Or Joshua 1.9, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you'll be careful to meditate upon it day and night so that you'll be careful to do all that is within it. For then I'll make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That's the pattern. You've got to hear it, and we've got to hear it again. We've got to think about it. We're going to be chewing on it and thinking about it and chewing on it. These are the four keys that Paul gives Timothy to persevere. These are the keys he gives us. We've got to live gospel truth. 
We've got to pass on gospel truth. We've got to be enduring for gospel truth. And we've got to think gospel truth. And next week, we'll take the second part of this message in the next few verses as we look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But this week, I would just encourage you to be living, to be thinking, to be enduring, and to be receiving and passing on truth so that we can endure, so that we can make it to the finish, so that we can finish the course. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it is our desire to finish strong. It is our desire to hear well done and a faithful servant, Lord. So, Lord, we just pray. Don't guard us from turning to other things for our strength other than your grace. Help us to be zealous, to be excited, to be passionate about being involved in this passing on, this transfer of truth to the next generation. Lord God, help us to be willing to endure, to be single-focused. Help us to play by the rules and not to cheat and think that we can get away with it. Help us to be patient as we labor and toil. And Lord, cause our minds to come back again and again and again to your truth. Lord, keep us. Don't let us slip through your hands. You promised you won't. And so in great confidence and joy, we say in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.